Hey there, I'm Adam Rissman, and welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom. This week, we're welcoming back not one, but two of our favorite past guests. That's engineering leaders Gene Su and Edmund Lau. When we last spoke with Edmund, he was an engineering leader over at Quip and had just released his book, The Effective Engineer. Jean, meanwhile, when we had her on, had just stepped away from her longtime role as an engineering manager at Medium. In the time since, they've both come together with a common goal, transforming engineers into leaders. And they're doing this through a company they've started together, Co-Leadership. Co-Leadership is taking the most valuable lessons that Jean and Edmund have learned through coaching over the years and distilling them down into workshops and online courses. So this week, with Intercom's Senior Director of Engineering, Lewis Bennett, steering the conversation, we're going to take a deep dive into some of those lessons and frameworks that Edmund and Gene have put together and hear a little bit about what they've learned themselves in the first six months of co-leadership. Their chat covers the difference between leadership and management, which are two things that are far from mutually exclusive, how to create a culture of healthy two-way feedback between your tech leads and ICs, and why trust is the foundation of the most effective engineering teams. If you want more insights from Edmund and Gene, they've actually put together a special guide for Inside Intercom listeners. It's all about how to design better working relationships. And to get your free copy, simply visit coleadership.com forward slash intercom. And to get more insights from our team, be it on engineering, product, design, marketing, or the business of startups, check out our library of more than 120 Inside Intercom episodes. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, and all the rest. Now, I'm going to hand the mic over to Intercom's Lewis Bennett, who's in the studio with Edmund Lau and Gene Sue. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Gene and Edmund, welcome to Inside Intercom. Um, to get started, can you give us a feel for what led you both to co-leadership and explain your mission there? Sure. So we both spent about... Uh, a decade each in uh, various engineering roles, including, you know, IC, uh, tech lead, and other engineering leadership roles. And I think both of us had this experience where we felt stuck, like we wanted to have more influence and impact than we were having, but we we were trying all these things and we couldn't figure out how to do it. And then once we connected and started, we both moved into coaching, coaching engineering leaders, and we saw that this was a pretty uh, common like pattern that people were going through. Mm -hmm. And so we really wanted to help people bridge that gap and make it an easier transition and also, you know, help people live the the lives and have the careers they really dream of. Yeah, I feel like there were times earlier in my career where, you know, I sort of wanted more more leadership roles. And I would do things like, can I ask my manager to become a manager? I would just sort of be like waiting for Mm -hmm. sort of leadership and authority to be handed to me. And like when when that didn't happen, it just felt like, okay, what do I do now? And I think Jean's had like a very similar experience in her career. And it's sort of easy, very easy in a lot of the people that we talk to, a lot of the uh, people that we coach, for them to sort of then feel stuck and like be waiting for opportunities to come. And a lot of our work in co-leadership is helping people bridge that gap, like to feel empowered, to actually start leading from, from where they are. And how do you guys define leadership? Leadership is, it's like having a... Having some sense of like the the impact and the influence that you want, and then being feeling empowered to take steps toward moving toward that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, think leadership is really about your mindset mm-hmm. rather than like I think a lot of times people will wait for a leadership role to be granted to them or or their potential to be recognized and then given this this title. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've seen is like a lot of people want that, and then what they hear is oh, you need to display leadership before you can have the role. And then they just like don't really know what that means. Like I didn't know what that meant. And I tried a bunch of things and 
you know, not not with much success. And so I think leadership is really, as Edmund mentioned, more about the mindset of, of taking initiative, of being responsible for the changes you want to see. And, and an implication of that is that then, you know, everyone really can be a leader. It's not something that has to be attached to a title or a role. Mm-hmm. It's something that you can decide and choose to to take on. And I think we believe that given the right tools, you can be more effective at doing that. Yeah. And especially with engineering teams, if you think of leadership just as management, there aren't that many like spots, right? Exactly. <laughs> right? Or yeah. like, and so you see a lot of people moving into roles just like mid or senior level ICs or or a tech lead or tech lead manager. And all these roles, you know, they change very quickly and there's, they're not super well defined. And so we really want to equip people with the skills to to have leadership in these types of roles that may not be explicitly, you know, hey, your role is an engineering manager. Yeah, I think that's super cool from a, like, power within the role. Mm-hmm. A lot of the discipline of engineering management, there's a certain kind of inherent tension to it because mm-hmm. someone will have developed their skill set in one one walk of life, computer science might be, or another technical mm-hmm. discipline. Um, and then there's so much kind of organizational gravity pulling people towards management role, which is a totally different discipline. Right. But the leadership is kind of the something you can do to be a senior individual contributor across mm-hmm. all those things or like the kind of proverbial, quote unquote, working manager um, role that it's uh, it's awesome. It kind of fits into both that gaps as well as can provide a strong foundation to switch from one to the other. Right. Yeah, I think like management uh, or even like being a tech lead, they're very obvious models of how to grow leadership. And it's often the ones that we gravitate to by default. Mm-hmm. But if you start to think about like organization companies, there are a lot of different problems that exist in an organization where there are gaps that exist. And really sort of anyone who builds awareness around that, that gap and like takes initiative toward it can step up and be a leader, even without any of those sort of following those like default patterns of you know, what it means to be a manager or what it means to be a tech lead. Mm -hmm. So um, shifting topics a little bit, I know one of the things that you've done as part of co-leadership is have both trainings for people across a lot of different companies as well as deeper trainings with specific companies Mm -hmm. as well. I'm sure that the attendee experience has been entirely awesome. Um, But what I'm curious for you is what each of you have learned in that process as well? Like, what do you think the most impactful things that are the most surprising things have been Mm -hmm. from your training, learning from the attendees of your courses? One thing that comes to mind is for our independent events, we have people come in pairs. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what we've done for the last few events. So we'll have some people like an engineering manager and a product manager who've been working together for a year or a year and a half. And, you know, we, we teach them some skills around like, how do you discover what's important to the other person? And then we send them off to do to have like a five minute conversation using these these skills of asking you know open ended questions and and really listening. And they'll come back and and say say something like, oh, "I just discovered more about like what motivates this person. I didn't even know that." And I've been working together for like a year and a half, right? And that's like so rewarding for us to hear that we're actually having that impact on people who work together all the time. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's like super motivating because it also makes us think, you know, if we can really sort of spread the work that we're doing at scale and sort of teach a lot of these, you know, foundational trust building, relationship building skills to more people. It feels like so many more teams would be able to like achieve higher levels of success. If you're like able to really understand what's important to all the stakeholders around you, all the people you work with, and you're able to like design much, just more, more fulfilling relationships at work, I think people would get so much more done. Yeah. And be way more efficient too, right? It's a five minute conversation and probably 
you know, that that relationship is now much more productive and efficient because of it. Yeah, it's amazing how much of getting work done is just getting people to actually trust each other, to work well together, to find areas where motivations are aligned or not aligned in order to help get stuff done versus just doubling down on like, hey, we need to do this thing. Why aren't we doing this thing? It's yeah. like, okay, how do we actually work together to have shared accomplishments and mm-hmm. things like that? I think that's one of the reasons why this, this is kind of a gap is as engineers, we're so focused on the, the how, the problem solving, like how do you solve this problem? So it's easy to focus on the tactical elements of, of something rather than taking a step back and investing in, you know, trust building and, and discovering what's important to people. Yeah, I've always kind of approached this from the simple fact that I can't read people's minds. Mm-hmm. And if something is important to someone, they'll need to tell me that yeah. as well. And I can infer, but the likelihood that I'll get that wrong is also very high. Mm-hmm. So if it's like, hey, I think you'd be great at this, someone will need to tell me, that sounds horrible. I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, Because none of us will be right all the time in that way. And so finding ways for people, whether it's, like you said, an EM and PM working together or whether it's peers or a manager and their direct reports, mm-hmm. finding ways to actually be able to effectively communicate. It's so empowering. It's one of the things I, I really love about the strategy with what you guys are doing. Yeah, I think when we realize that we can't read people's mind, it means both that like we have to share what's important to us, but we also have to ask people what's important to them. Mm-hmm. So it sort of becomes like this two-way, essentially discovery conversation where you sort of put what's important out on the table so you can actually start to make decisions around it. Mm-hmm. When you think about teams where it's more than just a one-on-one conversation, but it's kind of what's important to either individual members on the team or what's important to a team collectively, mm-hmm. uh, have you found any kind of frameworks that work well for teams to talk about things like this? Yeah, I mean, actually, it just sort of reminds me of like the the Medium workshop that we ran um, mm-hmm. a while back where uh, with the uh, members of the engineering team from Medium. And it was actually sort of the inspiration for why we started doing uh, pairs at our, at our uh, workshops. Mm-hmm. There's just like all this like shared context from people who are working the same team. But oftentimes, like what's important to this group of people isn't made explicit. In this workshop we did, we like one of the prompts that we asked people was, what are gaps that you notice in, in the organization or on the team? And just sort of creating this like shared pool, this shared context of, you know, what gaps everyone saw and like sort of what they wanted their team to be. People were able to share a lot of things and just build a lot of confidence that, oh, the gap that I see in the team isn't just something that I see. It's something that everyone else sees, too. I'm just sort of the one putting words to it in this in this group. But there's actually a lot of buy-in, a lot of alignment, a lot of support if I were to take initiative and like go and tackle that. Right. I think without that level of alignment, it's easy to think that oh, this is I'm the only person that this is you know bothering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, you know, no one else is having this problem because no one's bringing it up. And so everyone's kind of sitting with this thing thinking, Oh, like I, I, I shouldn't bring it up. I don't want to be, you know, the one complaining or yeah. Yeah, and that's like a broader limiting belief that we also see among a lot of engineering teams. It's just like people think that oh, I am alone in having this problem, or um, someone else will fix it. Yeah, that's or someone else will too. fix it. And like when we sort of have those beliefs, it's like if I'm a, if I'm alone in having this problem, then uh, I don't want to sort of disrupt everyone else by bringing it up. Um, mm. Or if I think that someone else is going to solve it, then I'm not going to take action. And so the impact of either of those beliefs is such that, like, I feel less empowered to um, take leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and those end up being just like two of the beliefs that we, you know, work towards equipping people with the tools to overcome in these like leadership experiences that we run or these like company programs that we run. Yeah, it feels like there's also some crossover in some ways with ideas like blameless postmortems and things like that of people being able to 
have shared vulnerability in the way to say, okay, here's exactly what happened. Let, let's not talk about the who, but let's talk about the circumstances that created this and really encouraging people to name the obvious, whatever mm-hmm. someone perceives as obvious, to generate more insightful conversation that way. And, and certainly something we do here that is very effective at promoting the greater good and helping people understand like, oh, it's not necessarily a people problem. Maybe it has to do with the circumstances of the problem or something we haven't prioritized or some other extenuating circumstance, et cetera. Those frameworks work best when people can build upon like an existing strong relationships uh, as well as a, a place to be safe, I guess, as well. When I think about your work, I think a lot about the research that's been done about people being able to perform better when they have psychological safety mm-hmm. and that vulnerability and psychological safety kind of go hand in hand mm-hmm. as well. Uh, have you seen any kind of direct or indirect experience that would confirm or refute that? Well, I think something that comes to mind is um, in one of the medium workshops, we also had people like, go around and hear the impact that they've had on, on other people or have, have everyone else in the group talk about the impact that that person has had on them. Mm-hmm. And um, when we talk about blameless postmortems, we usually think about it when like something's gone wrong. <laughs> and so a lot of our work is, is focused on like, uh, and this, this builds psychological safety, is, mm-hmm. is focusing on what's going well, yep. right? And so hearing from like 10 people like, hey, when you do this, like it makes me feel inspired to do my work more. Or um, when we do our postmortems, we do, it's most, mostly positive. It's like biggest, uh, happiest moments, Biggest wins. Lessons learned, like assessments of progress, and then gratitude. Gratitudes, mm-hmm. yeah. And so it really is focused on, like, what's going really well, and that really builds up psychological safety. So then when we do have to give each other feedback uh, in the moment, like, it, we, we, we have this trust that, like, hey, we both just really enjoy working with each other and, like, are doing really meaningful work. Mm-hmm. Do you find that certain personalities get that better than others? So if, if I speak for myself, I've gone through performance reviews before where you get like, oh, everything's going well, things like that. And I'm just like sitting on the edge of my chair waiting to hear about the things I could do better. Mm-hmm. There's a certain kind of, I'm not saying I don't listen, but it's that, that that's not the feedback I'm craving some ways. Like oftentimes I'm like, how can I get better? What can I do to improve? That people don't provide enough or get enough credence to positive reinforcement feedback. Mm-hmm. That way, I think I think it's a it's a very strong like engineering bias. Like when we when we do code <laughs> reviews, we look for what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Like it's very it's oftentimes very rare for people to say uh, like what's going right in a piece of code, and we end up sort of applying that same mentality to people. Even though like you know f- for a lot of like teams that are doing really well, probably you know if eighty percent of the time uh, things are going well, maybe like eighty percent of the retrospective should be spent on sort of celebrating what's going right or figuring out how to do more of what's going right right than yeah. focusing on the the small percentage of things that are not going well right right because like one one risk of like not focusing on what's going right is like if people don't know the impacts that they're having with all the positive actions they're doing, they might stop doing it mm-hmm. I think that's a, a an important point is when people share positive feedback, they often don't talk about the impact of the the positive things you're doing right so they'll just say, "Hey, you did a good job." <laughs> or something that just kind of seems like vague or yep. vo- vague and positive, mm-hmm. but they don't say like, hey, because you did this now, like so-and-so can really be unblocked or this person feels much better about their work or, you know, they don't they don't share the impact. And I think a lot of times when you don't have the, the impact shared, especially as engineers, we tend to just focus on like, what are the things I can change, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost like saying, where are the bugs? And it makes the assumption that everything else is working right? versus teasing out to be like, oh, okay, this whole system works because of all these amazing things. And there's some things we could tweak, but everything is going predominantly well. Yeah, yeah I think of every postmortem I've done and if it's like, okay, 
things that went well, things that could go better, and specific things to change. The things that can go well column is always given short shrift. It's like mm-hmm. three or four different things, and it's none of this kind of <laughs> what's the root cause for why things are going well. Right. Um, it's more digging into like, okay, why didn't that happen? What was the sequence and all that kind of things. Mm-hmm. That there's like separate issues with kind of the militaristic aspect of it of like trying to dive into like root causes if it's battle or something like that. But from a healthy culture perspective, yeah, you want to make sure you don't end up like messing up the good stuff while you're trying to fix some of the things that could be going better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's, there's like so much research around, uh, you know, feel a positive psychology around like how happiness leads to more success and better performance. And so I think like celebrating what's going right can also just create like a much happier team and also lead to better performance and success for the team too. Mm-hmm. So one thing about organizational happiness, it's super important to us at Intercom. It's basically the lifeblood of teams. So we've got all varieties of different pulse surveys and other things like that to tell us about what's working well. We spend a lot of time ensuring that that's going to be the case too, that we continue to, to do that and better while addressing it. So using the same kind of postmortem framework, but with team survey data as well. Are there other effective mechanisms that you're aware of for teams to kind of diagnose how they're doing at scale? I think for a company to just prioritize organizational happiness and and like how seamlessly things are working is like that's probably just the that, that's the first step that I think a lot of teams don't even focus on right it's much more like what's the short term like are you shipping right and like maybe not even looking at like hey is this managers like direct reports what's the what's the retention what's the you know what are the pulse surveys saying mm-hmm. so i think just having any metric related to organizational happiness is kind of better than most where most teams are at. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. I'm relatively new to Intercom. I started in February. And one thing that's different for me versus other companies I've worked for is the geographical distribution of the employee base. So Mm -hmm. we're in five different offices in four different countries. Mm -hmm. And so being able to effectively work together across continents is predicated on trust. And being able to say there's an aspect of happiness within that, but it's basically you until you physically meet people in person, 
everyone is two-dimensional in that space, you don't necessarily get to get that character of like, oh, okay, this is who this person is. This is like how they feel about these things and the kind of offhand conversations that help build trust over time. Having explicit conversations in my introductions here around someone so like, oh, okay, that's great. I can tell you all about what you need to know professionally, but actually let me just tell you a little bit about myself. Mm -hmm. Those have made for such strong working relationships in the process of like, yeah, okay, like it's currently, you know, so if it's 11 o'clock in San Francisco, it's 7 o'clock at night in Dublin. That's going to be a hard conversation to have. I need to remember that if I have an urgent question for someone that I'm taking him or her away from their families or away from the pub mm -hmm. or something else as well, that even acknowledging that or if they're calling me at five o'clock in the morning, acknowledging that I might be waking up, makes it easier to work together too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the the remote or the geographical distribution makes it, it's like a forcing function to make sure that you have the explicit conversations that build trust, mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of times uh, on teams, you kind of rely or fall back on being able to see each other, kind of getting a sense of like, hey, is this person doing okay? Just by seeing them at their desk. And so I think in the absence of that, it actually forces you to have these conversations more explicitly. Yeah. I feel like sometimes where uh, sort of like remote teams, one of the issues is when the meetings are sort of focused on around like logistics or like sort of handle, like basically making sure the logistics work as opposed to spending time, kind of like you said, like getting to know one another and just understanding what people's like core motivations are and sort of what's important to them and like sort of what makes them happy at their job. There's also a piece I think that would sort of accelerate building trust, which is just sharing, like whenever issues do arise, sort of clearing up the not the stories that get in the way. Like you talked about sort of vulnerability earlier and one of the researchers who sort of really influenced like our leadership experience work is also like Brene Brown, who just like does a lot of research into vulnerability and how like oftentimes the stories we make up with the people that we don't know too well um, hold us back from stronger working relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think sort of with remote working relationships, oftentimes, you know, when there is conflict, if there isn't just ways of like clearing them up of like, these these narratives that we make about other people that's sort of when like trust becomes harder to build but like spending time clearing up those stories helps build that trust a lot yeah, you can definitely get pretty imaginative with stories when you don't see the person in right. the office right totally it's like yeah. well what did that what did that person mean when they said this on slack or, mm -hmm. yeah. or what did that email really mean or the code review comment yeah i think we're all our own worst enemies when it comes to yeah. interpreting what other people said and either in the sense of giving people too much credit for what they're saying and missing something nefarious and very unlikely, whereas the much more common case is like there's some offhand comment that we're then, you know, mentally chewing on for hours right. on end, being like, I don't even, I don't, that was not the intention of what that yeah, comment was. Yeah, meanwhile, they were just trying to get through like, you know, 20 pull requests and like they were tired or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like I was afraid there was going to be a syntax error. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like basics. So I've worked over time with a lot of different engineers kind of going through the main transition into some variety of leadership role or like a lot of the kind of fundamentals idea of co-leadership from from my understanding of it correct me if i'm wrong is the sense of like people are ready to like dip their toes into it and there's a chicken egg scenario of like becoming a leader before you can become a leader mm -hmm. one of the things that i've done is i'll recommend people some some books that are interesting to me mm -hmm. what books have been interesting to you or what reading has been interesting to you to help people understand like what engineering leadership means what engineering management means mm -hmm. or any other kind of learning? Uh, one of my favorites is Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And that also ties into, you know, what we've been talking about with trust, because the author talks about like this foundation, like these five dysfunctions that you really need to address in a sequence. So that the basic one is lack of trust mm -hmm. and building trust and how that can be the foundation for everything else for um, 
and is written as a fable. So it's really easy to read and talks about um, sort of the dysfunctions of an executive team. Another book that I that I really like um, that's less focused on like management is this book called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, who used to be a former he was a former Navy SEAL and like ran team in Iraq. And a lot of that book is around this mindset of you know what he calls extreme ownership, like taking ownership of the outcomes. And I just remember one story from from the book where he talked about one trainer exercise where he sort of broke. His, his squad into a bunch of different subgroups. And they were running these races and they, they took like the leader from the winning group and swapped it with the leader from the losing group. And that losing group was able to win. And mm-hmm. it was just like this person had embodied what it meant to, to take ownership over that group and was able to like motivate everyone in that, in that group to, to actually do well. I think like that book sticks with me because it just has this mindset of um, like you are in charge of the results that you want to see. And it is not someone else's responsibility. And oftentimes, we disempower ourselves when we believe it's someone else's responsibility. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of uh, another book that I found really influential, which is Turn the Ship Around. And it kind of talks about this, I, I don't know what the correct term is, but he runs a, like a nuclear submarine. And he changed the entire model from like a leader follower model where he would go around and like there was a hierarchy of hey, do this, and then that person would tell someone else what to do to a leader-leader model. And so by the end, he was just kind of like wandering around the submarine. People would come up to him and say like, hey, this is the context. I'm going to make this decision. What do you think? And then just like, okay, that sounds good. And he just like go around kind of approving things and everyone would come to him with the information he needed to make the decision. And so, I mean, for me, it was sort of like, if this guy can do it with a nuclear submarine, like we can definitely do it with like, you know, running internet software. (laughs) (laughs) It it puts it in context. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's something about the way, like we were talking earlier about how software engineering is one discipline and then management is another, but sometimes it feels like there's no idea sharing in the Mm -hmm. way that software engineers do management as well, where we think about like, how do you break things into component parts and have distributed systems that talk to each other? And then management tends to be this kind of top-down orchestrated thing Mm -hmm. that has fewer of those components that way as well. Mm -hmm. I always like hearing about books that have ostensibly nothing to do with software engineering because it brings in new ideas that way. Yeah, to the same effect if it's like, oh yeah, here's someone who's coordinating this two different pools of a race and like it just takes that one person to coordinate those different things. It's like there's not an easy analogy for that within computer science, which makes you think more. You have to use different neurons in that case. Yeah, yeah. I think that's also like an aspect that we're, that makes us really excited about our work is like how do we sort of translate some of these concepts from that mm-hmm. are already like pretty well known in other industries into language that maybe like engineers can sort of better resonate with? Like how do we sort of use our engineering careers and like everything we've learned about, you know, abstractions or investments in infrastructure? Like how do we sort of use those same concepts but apply them to relationships? Yeah, like every I think every engineer has an idea of like, okay, when the technical debt gets bad, you need to chip away at it. You need to invest in it. You need to, you know, create projects around it. And the same is true for relational debt, right? Like if if you invest in it up front, then you can set yourself up for a better relationship down the road. But, you know, sometimes relational debt gets pretty bad and then you have to, you know, really invest a lot of time to make a working relationship better. Right. Or like we'll know that like we, you know, we definitely should design our software if we wanted to achieve the goals that we want. But we don't sort of apply that same mindset to our relationships. Like if we want our relationship <laughs> to turn out a certain way, it would be helpful if we explicitly designed them. Does there become a point where it becomes awkward? Where you're talking so much about your relationship and how you measure the successes of relationships uh, among teammates 
it makes it a little impersonal in your experience? Or is it something where it's both people just know what's going on and it's like, oh, yeah, cool. That's just what we're going to do. Right now, like what we've seen is an underinvestment in, in talking about how people like to work, want to work together. And I think we're pretty far off from like over over investing in there. And at least for us working together, we, we definitely invest a lot of time in conversations just around like what's going out well, what's not going well. And it's it's always been surprising to me, like how how well it's paid off, yeah. made everything else easier. Also, like any sense of awkwardness, I think, just comes from like using like a new muscle that you just haven't exercised before. So it's like right. maybe a little uncomfortable, like you quite don't, don't quite know how to do it correctly. And a lot of our the like, you know, day long events that we run are teaching people the language that they can use to sort of have these like discovery conversations or sort of like design their relationships better, mm-hmm. like what language they can use to sort of ease into those conversations. But also like to embrace that it is going to be it's going to be different from what you're doing day to day. And so it is going to feel a little bit a little bit awkward. And so mm-hmm. I think that's why a lot of times people read, um, you know, communication books and then they understand intellectually that this could work. And then they go to work and then they don't use any of the, the things that the book says to do right? mm-hmm. <laughs> because you don't get the kind of stepping stone of like practicing in a safe environment and then then transferring it to work. Yes. Yeah, so you compartmentalize versus synthesize right. in that way. Yeah. As you guys look forward What's next for, for you at co-leadership? Um, are there any things you'd want the listeners of Inside Intercom to know about? Yeah, man. One thing that we've actually put together for the Intercom listeners is just a, a guide on how to design your relationships as, as alliances. It's something, a tool that we put together to really get a sample of like some of the things that we teach in our leadership experiences as well as our leadership programs with companies. It's like how do you ease into a conversation where you actually have an explicit discovery phase of like understanding what's important to the other person and then how do you sort of build alignment around that mm-hmm. and then looking forward we're, we're we're spending starting to spend our time trying to take a lot of these like leadership experiences that we've been running in the bay area and broaden the reach to people all over the world and so we're starting to launch our, our online courses and build sort of longer multi-week programs where people can learn some of the material around like investing in relationships uh, around building trust around uh, building effective teams and learn that in like across videos as well as like just experiential practice sessions that we do online. Yeah, we're also interested in running in-person events, not just in the Bay Area, doing some travel as well. Awesome. I will say the topic area you guys cover, I'm super passionate about. I'm super excited to see two people that are so competent attacking this for a lot of different companies and really helping them open their eyes to their potential. I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.